This is Scott Galloway, and you're listening to Five Questions with Dan Shawbell. You're listening to the Five Questions podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Shawbell. In fewer than 10 minutes, my goal is to extract the best advice from the world's smartest and most interesting people by asking them just five questions. My guest today is NYU Stern professor, author, and serial entrepreneur, Scott Galloway. Scott founded nine companies, including Profit, Red Envelope, and L2. He is the best-selling author of The Four and The Algebra of Happiness and served on the board of directors of the New York Times Company and Urban Outfitters. We discuss his career and his latest book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, during this podcast episode. Scott, welcome to Five Questions. Thanks, Dan. Good to be with you. You've started and sold companies while serving on the board of directors of major brands. What have you learned from these experiences that taught you about building and growing and sustaining a successful business? The key to being a great entrepreneur is being too stupid to know you're going to fail. If you're trying to build credibility and contacts and then start a company, you're not an entrepreneur. And also knowing when to fold tent and move on. There's a myth that you should always persevere and never give up, which is bullshit. There's absolutely a time to give up. The most apt analogy is these businesses are your closest thing you'll have to kids until you have kids. You conceive it. It looks, smells, and feels like you. You become irrationally passionate and emotionally attached to it. Everybody needs a kitchen cabinet of people who can give them honest, sober advice. The best thing that can happen is success. The second best thing that can happen is to fail fast. Failing fast is a blessing in disguise. Speaking of heartbreaking, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated economic inequality. What do you recommend to people who have been most harmed under these circumstances and to companies and policymakers on how to solve this problem? First is vote. The demo in democracy is either working really well or not well, and that is the people who vote, basically senior citizens, wealthy people, and also 400 families are responsible for 50% of the contributions to a presidential campaign, and they speedball that influence with think tanks. America used to be about trying to get people rich. Now, slowly but surely, America has become about keeping rich people rich because they are the ones that vote. They are the ones that control what has become a coin-operated electorate. And the second thing is for the rest of us, we have to decide, are we comfortable with a society barreling towards 3 million lords being served by 350 million serfs? At some point when six families in America are worth more than the bottom 50%, the bottom 50% decides to take that wealth away, that that's the easiest means of doubling their income. So I think it's in everyone's interest to figure out a way to express more comity of men and not create a permanent underclass that's vulnerable every time we have a a crisis. Great point. And the way I think about this is Mm -hmm. it's short-term versus long-term. Short-term, all the most powerful people are thinking, I need to get as much as I can. I need to be as greedy as possible. Take, 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 take. What they're really doing, they're creating the world that they don't even want to live in because they're going to have to have gates upon gates and moats and crocodiles to protect themselves from all these Mm -hmm. people who have they've they've suppressed for so long. And is that the real world they want to live in in the future? Our elected officials are supposed to prevent a tragedy of the commons and think long term because no wealthy person is going to disarm unilaterally. The 1% of the wealthiest Americans have had their best year ever. That's the dirty secret of this pandemic. World War II, Chrysler converted their biggest factory to build Bradley tanks. And that one factory punched out more tanks than the entire Third Reich. Have you seen any company convert to full pandemic response that doesn't make money off it, such as a healthcare company? Until we align the incentives, until the wealthy actually feel the pain of the crises that the bottom 50% are, we're not going to have the type of response we need. Yeah. I mean, they're so insulated that it's hard for them to express empathy. And we both agree that COVID has accelerated change for the better and the worse. What do you predict will be the lasting impact on our lives post-COVID and how can we prepare for it? 
Well, I believe the world isn't what it is. It's what we make of it. So there's a lot of things, a lot of great silver linings here. We have to make conscious decisions to invest in and hold on to certain things. You know, what things do we leave behind? How are we going to change our society? There's huge opportunity, but it's not opportunity that will be registered on its own. Are we maturing a generation of young people that, that look at my generation and say, okay, global cooperation is important. If we're giving the military $700 billion and the CDC $7 billion, and COVID-19 is going to kill more people than World War II, and it doesn't appear that tanks are lining up at the Mexican-American or the Canadian border, should we be spending 1% of the budget we spend on the military on the CDC? Should we embrace our brothers and sisters overseas and learn from other nations in terms of their response to COVID instead of this American exceptionalism where we accuse Taiwan and Singapore being more compliant, which is basically our way of saying they're wimps to excuse our own incompetent response? Could we mature a generation of people that realize that there, by the grace of God, go I and decide that we can't have the wealthiest nation uh, be a nation where one in five households with children are food insecure. So there's enormous opportunity, but that opportunity is only there if we decide to embrace it and invest in it. Kind of leads to what I wanted to get at next, which is this idea of this American dream and following your passion. And people are told to follow their passion, but not everyone is able to turn their passion into a career. Most passions remain hobbies. You've said to follow your interest not your passion? How does someone decide whether to turn their passion or interest into a career or not? I think it's dangerous, this kind of, this this dictum of follow your passion. And it's it's usually espoused by someone who's a billionaire, is already rich, and made their money in iron ore smelting or something strange. Your job isn't to follow your passion as a young person. Your job is to find out what you're really good at and then to become one of the best in the world at it. My passion is sports. I would have liked to have made my living as a professional athlete. I learned pretty early on in high school and then in college. I could not make a living there. So I started focusing on things I was good at. And then when I became great at that, those things, I became passionate about them because they started affording me everything from a nicer home to a broader selection set of mates that I was all of a sudden able to have friends and mates that were more interesting and better looking than me as I became better at what I did. And those things will make you passionate about whatever it is. You made two really good points. One is you get a premium for being the best. If you're the best in the world, people will pay more for that. And the other one is really important and does not get said enough is this idea of following your passion is usually said by people of higher social economic status, talking down to those of lower status. This kind of hustle porn industry that says, quit your job and go work for Jeff Bezos for free. Well, okay. What if you're a single mother? Look, there's a certain reality around, I think in a capitalist society, everyone has an, an obligation to develop economic security. And it sounds boring and everybody likes to think, well, if I pursue what I love, that's just going to happen. No, it doesn't. You have to have a plan. It's really hard and it's really competitive out there. Tax lawyers don't grow up. You don't hear an eight-year-old saying, I'm going to be a tax lawyer. Oh, you're going to be an astronaut. You're going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a tax lawyer. But people, those tax lawyers who have incredible skill and can navigate tax law and understand how to write well, understand how to communicate to clients, they end up flying private and uh, doing really interesting things with really interesting people, which makes them passionate about tax law. These are just the facts, right? And I think it's a great awakening to realize that, hey, something that you're pursuing, the probability of making money and building a career is lower than others, but it's not impossible. And speaking of, of advice, what is your best piece of career advice? Nothing is as good or as bad as it seems. You know, I screw up all the time. And Adam Alter, my colleague at NYU, has done a ton of research about people in palliative care that are towards the end. And their biggest regret 
or regrets are not maintaining relationships, not living the life they wanted to, to live, living a life that other people wanted them to live, and also how they responded to things. And that is when they look back on their disappointments in life, they don't regret the disappointments, what happened. They regret how they responded. Life isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to what happens to you. And the present value of emotion is enormous. And that is when you screw up, you're really hard on yourself. You're really upset. And then when you look back, you almost always regret being that hard on yourself. Forgiveness is key to long-term health and relationships, but you also need to bring forgiveness to yourselves. And when something bad happens to you, just recognize it's probably not as bad or as meaningful as you think. At the same time, when you're killing it, when you get promoted, when your stocks go up, recognize that too, a lot of that is not your fault. And recognize nothing is usually as ever as good as it seems. And bring in your horns. Where you are most vulnerable to a mistake is after a big win, because you start believing your own press. And you start thinking, oh, I'm good at this stock thing. I'm going to start this stock trading thing. I'm going to start levering up with margin. Or I'm awesome at work. It wasn't a function of luck. And you start getting arrogant. And then the God the hand of God is very good at bitch slapping you and showing you that, no, you were just lucky. I would say when things go wrong, when your business fails, don't be so hard on yourself. When relationships fail, it's not entirely your fault. It will not seem as meaningful or as upsetting as time goes on. And also recognize that your successes are not entirely your fault either and bring a certain amount of humility, grace, and gratitude. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Scott. To follow his journey, you can read post-corona and find him on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, where he shares research Research, political and social views, and future predictions. To watch the full extended video version of this episode, go to youtube.com slash Dan and please remember to rate and review the 5 Questions podcast on iTunes. Mm-hmm.